and welcome to Formula for Success in association with F1 Manager 2023. Yes, I'm Eddie Jordan, and of course, my co-host in this wonderful podcast, he is going to bring some statistics to actually show us how great this show is going eventually, guys. But Mr. David Coulthard, across the table from me. Yeah, once again, we're more than a metre apart. I'm liking this because I can see your movements better. Right, so let's get uh, on with what we're going to do in the show this week. We're going to uh, take some questions from our our listeners. So we're going to have a a little bit of a chat about leadership in life and in sport. When you were running Jordan, how do you think your employees and other drivers would have described you as a boss? Twat comes to mind. Uh, Unbelievable. Somebody that's just, uh, if you like, defied nature and is just such an unbelievable leader. And uh, no, seriously. um, (laughs) I thought you were being serious there for a minute. Not, not, you should have been looking at my face (laughs) instead of looking at your notes. Um, Look, leadership is, is a matter of a personal thing. It's an expression and it is an extension of your personality. And I don't think... I'm any different in normal life at home uh, with my family or my wife as I think as I was uh, in the office, except sure, I was harder, very tough. And there were certain things that I couldn't cope with. And I liked loyalty, I liked integrity, and I liked hard work uh, and no bullshit. Don't ever lie to me because honestly, I can never cope with that. I just need to know exactly what I'm letting myself in for, whether it be sporting, financial or any other agreement. Tell me how it is. That seems fair enough. And um, so I was really quite brutal about things like that. But I always had a point that I spoke to the staff every Monday morning and everyone just down tools, nine o'clock. They were all in there from before eight. But at nine o'clock, we had that little gathering and I wanted everyone to shoe up together, get close to each other and just listen and ask me the questions. And they used to ask me the most violent questions, um, which put me on the spot. But I thought that was fair because they needed to know what my mind was like and where I think I was bringing the team and what I was trying to achieve. And I think it's important for even though the teams now are getting so big that it must be very difficult to do that. But I felt that the bond inside Jordan was so strong. And I could see that at a race meeting where if somebody made a mistake, we were all cover for them. And of course, people make mistakes. But reflecting again on saying what in recent times we've had with with, with Ferrari, what the great name and the great people and the kind of cost that those people are because they only employ the very best. When I think about Jordan and where the Jordan teams and personnel went on to work for and, and become megastars in their own field, I have to say that, yes, I am really proud of what was done in those years at Jordan because it was special. Did you treat the drivers differently? Because it seems like you really were sort of father figure to the staff, to the, the team, everyone back at the factory who design and build and ship the cars. But the drivers are obviously crucial in, in delivering your hopes They're and They're also very expensive, David, as well you know. <laughs> Rightly so. <laughs> I don't Talent never, costs money. I never thought they deserved anything like the money. It depended. You know, Damon and I, we, for example, when he came to the team, there was a little bit of uh, acrimony there because uh, he, he had dealt with the sponsor, which was Benson and Hedges, and they agreed to pay him. And that's never the way it should happen. Sponsors paid the team, the team paid the driver. And so, so why did it happen that b- way? B- because they wanted him. And Damon would tell you that I didn't actually ever want him. But that's maybe not quite true, because uh, what Damon did bring to us was a knowledge 
and knowing how to win. And, and, and this is a great story for, for other teams, for example. I'm looking at teams other than Red Bull. At the moment, they're losing sight of the ability and the mindset of how to win. Now, what Damon did to us, and I give him full credit for it, probably absolutely now more than I did at the time, and that was he had a, a, a mindset of knowing how to win because he had been a world champion and he won a lot of races particularly uh, at Williams. Uh, he went to Arrowsend, but he came to us and he won with us, gave us our first win. And I'll always be grateful to him for that. However, back to the story about did I treat drivers and the teams? Of course not. Uh, but I never treated the team with kid gloves. I mean, it was hard love and tough love. And I think that's important in any sport. One of the things I wanted to ask you, because I get asked this a lot, People find it fascinating, the team, the teamwork, that, that sense of team. And it seems to me that a lot of companies could learn from how a Formula One team operates. And you mentioned about people make mistakes, but we cover for each other because that, that's what a team does. A team doesn't go, well, that's not my job. A team doesn't go, oh, yeah, this guy's lit the, lit the team down. But in companies, a lot of time, there isn't that real feeling of togetherness. So how... You must do inspirational speeches and, and, and uh, you know, leadership conferences and things like that. How do we articulate to companies that to operate the way a, a sports team does? Because a sports team, if you're good enough, you're old enough. So we put 17-year-olds on, on, on the premiership or Wimbledon, and if they can deliver, we applaud them. But we'd never do that in business, would we? We'd not put a 17-year-old running the engineering well, side of things or the, the, the marketing company. David Jordan was slightly different. And um, because I was such a chiseler, and for the avoidance of doubt, listeners, a chiseler is a person who chisels away at the price and tries to get something for next to nothing. So I would go to, particularly there were four universities I went to. I went to Imperial College, Oxford, Cambridge, and, and I always used Queen's in Belfast. And I would go to the, the head professor and I would say, I will come with Gary Anderson and we do a chat for an hour. And in reciprocation, I want the names and the addresses of your three or two very highest level students in that year. And so that's how Sam and all of these guys came to us, young engineers. Sam Michael. Sam was, Michael, who was your engineer, I think, was he not? No, I, I never worked with Sam, but he, uh, but he just, was just to help one of our many. listeners, he, he ended up being the head of technical side at Williams before returning to, is he Australian? He's on Australia, yeah. And so we would acquire these people. And I knew that they would only be there for uh, several years, so two, three years, because it would become obvious how great these guys were. But I was getting them on the cheap, but I was giving them the inspiration and the push because I knew that they would be leaving. And I was always happy about that. And I had a, a thing in Jordan that they always had to come and see me the day before they start and the day before they leave because I need to know why they're leaving and for what reasons. Are they going for money? Are they going for... Or Were any of them honest and they said they just didn't like you? Um, oh, yeah, plenty of them. <laughs> plenty of them. But I didn't think it was that kind of a conversation we were having, okay. David. We are talking Sorry, about inspiration and motivation and all of those things that you're talking about. And so the reality is that I did things slightly different, but I felt you asked me about motivation. And we had every that Monday that we would have the chats with the team. Um, that in itself was a massive motivation. And, you know, we would talk about, okay, we don't have the money, but we're putting everybody on the bus and we're going to spa. 
all the kids and the family. So that was done ever before I had a clue we were going to win that race or before you tried to, to, to kill poor Michael Schumacher in that car. Um, but, you know, yes, that was a lucky win, but we had everyone from the staff there. So we used to have staff parties. I used to, even the bailiff who used to come and try and bring us to the jail, I used to invite him up and then he became my friend. And I used to give him show cars to bring to his charity fate on the middle of the place in Toaster. It was hilarious. You just, but there was a great vibe it was like party time it didn't seem like work it's like one party rolled into another yes there was a bit of a drink yes there was a bit of rock and roll but there was the serious side and that's what i always you must make sure that if you're going to enjoy life make sure you treat the serious things really serious and determination and commitment to win and to make sure that your friends your partners in that team we all pull together to get the maximum out of it well, look, that's really, really nice words, and I, I sincerely thank you for that. I'm curious to know, of all the people that you've come across in your time, in, in business and in Formula One, what do you think it is, whether it be a Bernie, the way he ran Formula One, whether it would be a Max Mosley who ran the FIA, whether it was De Montezemolo or you know, Flavio or whoever the people are, that Ron Dennis, that you sort of went toe-to-toe with on different things, what is it that's a common thread through these people? Is it that they just speak louder and longer so they become leaders because they've got a bigger voice? Or is it their intellect? Or is it their arrogance? What is the thing that makes a leader? Well, you've mentioned names there, and each and every one of them were gigantic in their own right. However, there is one part of my mind that's always veering towards the one person, and that is Bernie. He's still around. He's still in touch with everything and he'll never be far away from it. And I I know that our our new leader, Stefano Domenicali, which we had a great show at Silverstone with, a a live podcast, um, he still reveres and most of his people are the Bernie people. They've not been replaced. Um, So I should think that there is a lot of Bernie still happening inside Formula One. But what set him apart then? He was just so ruthless. I mean, he was so generous on one side and so absolutely ruthless on the other side. Now, people can say maybe it's a size thing. It wasn't a size. He used to put people down, big people. You talked about, you know, the Ron Dennis's and, and Frank and, and, and Tom Walkinshaw, and I think I've said this on a previous show. I mean, he would have no compulsion but to come out at a team principal meeting and he'd say to Tom Walkinshaw, Tom, the great thing about you is I always know when you're telling a lie, because your lips move. I mean, that was just such a put down. But he would say then to Frank, when Frank sort of try to be, Frank was always very quiet in these meetings and he's a quiet person, but he's always very thoughtful and he comes out with some good stuff. But Frank would turn around and say, Frank, you're just so deceitful. And um, that's how he would, and that, that's how I became the name of my band, The Robbers. He said, Jordan, you're just a fucking robber, that's all. And, and I said, Bernie, thanks, you give me a great name for a rock and roll band. <laughs> Formula for Success is brought to you in association with F1 Manager 2023, giving you unparalleled control of your chosen F1 team and a brand new mode that allows you to rewrite the season on your terms. Should we take some listener questions? Because um, we've got actually one here from uh, a Robert E. Uh, there's one for me and there's one for you. So I'll take my one first. Okay. Uh, he's uh, saying to me, uh, he thinks that my most complete season 
uh, or he's asking what my most complete season a driver was. And he's uh, points out the statistics would say 2001 because I finished second in the championship that year. Um, but he actually points out that he thinks I was very unlucky in 1995. Oh, that's not true. Well, I, I think I was, look, I was a bit unlucky in 95. Um, and if I keep reminding you of all the times that I had mechanical problems that took away victories, you're just going to start throwing stuff at me. Um, but I was also a bit inexperienced. So I've got to take it on the chin that although I had a great opportunity in 95, uh, I wasn't the complete driver or the best that I could be at that point. 2001, it's interesting. See, that was after the plane crash and definitely things changed for me in the plane crash because that was a massive wake up. You know, you, you're sitting two metres away from, where, from tragically the, the, the pilots had been sitting and, and they were both the killed. List, could you please enlarge? Because I think it's an unbelievable, you've touched on it. You were in a small plane with your girlfriend and dog, and um, the pilots were bringing... It wasn't that bad. <laughs> Please, not this is a family show, I keep it telling is, you. Tell okay. the story. Right, so uh, it is uh, 2000. It is the Tuesday before the Spanish Grand Prix, and um, I impatiently decided I wanted to leave London uh, early, and the aircraft that I'd been uh, using wasn't available. So I, as a spoiled... 30-year-old go find me another racing driver well overpaid, overpaid. We, 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 overpaid. Yeah, I'm not sure but anyway I, I say give me another plane and another plane as is you found folks as you do as, as one did back in those days but anyway I've matured and moved on which is the, re the point of the story get in the aircraft meet the pilots for the first time. There was a Scottish flag on the tail fin of the aircraft and I thought oh that's a nice little touch. We take off um, we're in the cruise from Farnborough back to Nice 35,000 feet, I'm listening to this noise and I'm being a driver, you get sensitive sure. to mechanical noises and I'm, I'm hearing this whirring, whirring, whirring and then eventually feel the juddering and as it turns out, left engine, bearing failure. I can see the cockpit, see the lights go off, you know, flashing lights so the pilots shut that engine down and to me it's quite clear we've had an engine failure but single engine landings are Not. a procedure that are tested and tried and, and, and it's all part of what the pilots do. What did surprise me at the time is neither of the pilots sort of looked over the shoulder to say, you know, we've got an issue, even though I knew we had an issue. But normally you would sort of communicate with, with your, um, passengers. Your, your passengers in the aircraft. But anyway, I'll leave them to it because I didn't want to go up there and go, what's going on? Because, you know, it doesn't matter what's going on. What matters is we get down and, and land safely. So uh, they identify uh, Lyon as the, the, the biggest airport to aim for. And they get into a, uh, several minutes it took to get in the, the glide, get down there. And we're approaching the airfield and we're about tree height. It turns out that um, the captain, sadly, came in too low, too slow, which are two you know, absolute no-nos in, in aviation. Being too high and too fast is a good thing. You're not going to hit anything, but too low, too slow. The aircraft stalled. And um, just at the you know, point where we're about to touch down, aircraft veers to the left, touches the wingtip, comes forward onto the fuselage. Sadly, the fuselage was removed, including the cockpits, and, and the pilots were both tragically killed. And then we grind to a halt. And uh, I get into the process of getting out of the aircraft um, through the front. The door clearly was non-usable. So we, where the cockpit was, we climbed out. Andy went, first of all, who was my trainer, I stepped down to him. We then helped uh, my girlfriend at that time. She handed uh, her little dog 
And out of this craziness, it's funny the things you remember, isn't it? Andy took this little Maltese terrier and he could have played for the England rugby team. He like through this, like from the scrum, this little dog went off like a rugby ball spinning and it must have gone a good 50 meters. This was one of the most amazing things I'd ever seen. And so I, I just remember that standing out of the traumatic situation. And then we helped my girlfriend down from the aircraft and we walked away uh, on, onto the grass and stood there because of course the, the emergency services didn't think the plane was going to crash so it's not like there's a welcoming party for you on the side of the runway and they eventually uh, turn up in, in the meantime I've gone back to the aircraft to to take a sort of stock of is, is anything I can do for the pilots and it was evident that that was not going to be the case the police turn up the fire engine turns up they start dealing with the small fire the first thing the French policeman asked me for is my passport. So I point to the aircraft and in a fairly blunt manner explain that my passport's on the plane. I hadn't taken the time to open my briefcase and, 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 and get my passport before getting out of a crashed aircraft. So you can imagine that causes them a bit of confusion because how do you prove who these people are that have just landed in your country if they don't have their passports on them? And then, you know, you have to go through the procedures of leaving the aircraft, leaving the airport, which takes a, a great deal of time, of course, and then eventually coming back to Monaco because there was nothing we could do for the pilots. There was nothing we could do for the situation. And clearly I would no interest in getting back in a plane on that day to come back, back home to Monaco. So that's the Tuesday. Come the Sunday, I'm racing in the Spanish Grand Prix and I finish second to my teammate Mika. But that was a life-changing moment because one, I realized I only put myself in that situation by being a spoiled racing driver demanding another plane. Just kick up the bum reality of life could be gone like that. And I remember I got back to Monaco late that night, lay in my bed and I had, you know, you get those some sort of shivers sometime where you feel like, and, and the, the, the expression in Scotland would be, oh, someone's walked over your grave. I had one of those little shivers and I'm like, Jesus, I, I, could, have, I could have been dead. I think you did really well because, you. Um, you know, to survive an aircraft and then four days later go and participate in a, in a Grand Prix and finish second just shows the people that sports people have a way of isolating trauma and isolating things that are seem like massively upsetting. To most people, they would probably need the best part of a year to come to terms with that. How did you shut it out of your mind? I've got to ask you this. My mother is a very what's for you will not go by you kind of person. And when, when my parents dealt with the loss of their daughter and, and, and my sister nine years ago, they, and they got that news when they were in Australia. So they, they have to carry that news. You know, we had to organize to fly them back. And, and then my brother and I met them up in Glasgow when they eventually got there. They had, by the time they got back, to use a Ron Dennis word, compartmentalized the reality of the situation, which is tragically she was gone. And because she'd always had this mentality of what's for you won't go by you. Of course, they were sad like anyone who, like everyone in life who will suffer a bereavement at some point. But you have a choice, haven't you? You, have a, you, you, can, you can sit there and feel sorry for yourself and think that why me, why has this happened to us and all that. Or you can accept this wonderful life for what it is. There's good, there's bad and everything in between. And, um, and, and that, I think, has been instilled in me. I think in a previous discussion, you've talked about moving on. I think your advice to Felipe Massa in a, in a previous show it was- Turn the page. Turn the page. Let 
bygones be bygones. And some people just can't let go of things. They keep asking, why, why me, why me? So I think you, there's a point where you just have to accept you can control certain things. The uncontrollables, that's just the variabilities of life. So that's how I, I dealt with that. I moved on. I, I was obviously very sorry for the, 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 the family of the pilots, but I couldn't change what had happened. And I wasn't at the controls when it happened. And David, I think it's a good time for me to say, because I've said it on a show before. I rang you up when your sister um, had the tragic news and that she's no longer with us. And you said, EJ, thank you. She was an outstanding girl, wonderful memories. But they were the cards that she was dealt. And it seemed kind of harsh, but actually it's not harsh. It's exactly deadly accurate. And so what I think that is important is that you live the moment. Turn the page. Do not get angry because life's far too short. And anyone, and this is a message to people out there, of course, whether your neighbor has moved in and their tree is growing over your back wall or this person or that person, forget it. In the scheme of things, it doesn't matter. What matters is your overall happiness. Your space inside your head is free and devoid of all of that aggravation. Just move on and actually do the best you can to be as good a person as you can. Wise words. Right. We've got completely off topic here. I'm sorry to our listeners that we haven't managed to deal with many of the questions. But the one here coming back to Mr. Robert E. was to you. Um, it's a simple question, actually. Who was the best driver that ever drove for you, in, in your opinion? And you can't say, Michael, because, I know he, because he only did one, one race for you. This is going to be someone that's done a full season for you. Well, I think that's an unfair question because in many... Answer the question, Mr. Jordan. Well, there was some crap... There was the some, oath. There were some crap cars and there were some great cars. And it's easier to drive well in a good car than it is as well you Hold know. On, I'm going to say to you what you say to me. Get off the fence and answer the question. Well, I would say... For what Damon brought to us in terms of an ability of knowing how mentally and structurally to know how to win, even though he may not have been the quickest driver we've had. Um, so I would say, who is the driver who gave us the most influence, the most motivation and the best path to go forward for sure was Damon. In terms of speed, uh, we've had them on here. I think Gasho was a really quick driver. Eddie Irvine was massive. Uh, Frenson was the most underrated driver we've ever had because he had an ability to do unbelievable things. And if people want to go back in time, and you just mentioned there, I can't mention uh, Michael Schumacher. But when Michael Schumacher and Frenson were in the same Mercedes team in sports cars, you have a look at the figures. Frenson was every bit as quick and in most cases quicker than Michael. Um, and that was translated into his performance. He just didn't have uh, the total inner belief that I think racing drivers need to have to be world champions. And um, even though Frenson finished third in the world championship with Jordan, he could have gone on to be awesome. If I'd had a better car in better situations, perhaps, or if Williams had believed in him more when you were, I think you may have been there at the time, but um, he and Patrick had never got on together and it was a sort of a, a face-off which was a shame because really uh, at Williams, Frenson should have won more than one race. Um, and I still don't believe how 
little results that he had there, given the talent that he had. And I would have to include him as being one of the great, great drivers. Of course, Jean Alessi was around. Look, there was a lot of great you drivers. You Fisichella, you yeah. Barrichello. You and, and, and they were great, truly great drivers. for you? Of course, yeah. Truly driver, all, all Grand Prix winners. And um, so we had a huge group of people. And you can't leave Ralph out because Ralph was so quick. You remember that race in Spa that we talked about? Really, he should have won that race easy, except I made the decision that he couldn't pass and he obliged. And he's turned out to be such a great friend and reliable and uh, turns up on time, David, am I making sense here? <laughs> and doesn't uh, get himself into late night soirees in Sass till 4.30 in the morning. Well, actually, when you mentioned Ralph, I, I saw him at the last Grand Prix because he works with uh, German television and I mentioned that you very kindly because you came around with your lovely wife Marie you came around to, to uh, the, the summer house and you brought a bottle of his rosy I did wine not a bottle a, a, a magnum. magnum okay I'm sorry Mr Jordan listeners doesn't do things by half he doesn't bring bottles uh, if you invite him it's a magnum anyway and, and it was it was absolutely lovely so I went up to Ralph and said look got to compliment you on, on the, the wine that uh, Eddie shared with us can I buy some and uh, he was a bit sort of non-committal on that. So I don't know if he only sells to certain people or he maybe thought I was going to do an EJ and case, blag it. In my case, the word sale, <laughs> it refers to exchange of currency. Uh, I don't do that. Yes, Ralph is very generous to me and he remembers. What we do do, he has a home in Cape Town and he has a beautiful, beautiful uh, property and I'd say it's even made more beautiful because at least two or three, maybe four, of Marie's favourite pictures uh, adore the walls there. So he's a great collector of my wife's uh, pictures uh, and we have great time with Ralph. I have a lot of time for him. Yeah, here, here. You've and had some listen, great guys. by the way, why didn't you ask him to be on our show? Well, I did. I did ask him. And what did he say? He, well, of course, he, to me, he said no. Uh, but, but he said if he won't if, say no to but me but if Eddie asks he'll say yes right I think we've rambled on long enough so um, EJ it's time for us to say goodbye uh, listeners keep in touch via ffs at whisper.tv and follow us on social media at f1 for success bye bye listeners Brrr.